case number 1.08, the APT files, part 1, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Do you know what APT stands for? Uh, I do. Advanced Persistent Threat. Yep. Do you know what it takes to get an APT identifier? Uh, that I don't know, actually. Internet, please? Quite, quite possibly, because <laughs> I couldn't figure it out either. I, I went through a bunch of, of Google searching to figure it out from the various places that have a bunch of background on the, AP, on the various APTs, and... None of them had any rules for what makes an APT. And then I bounced around and saw that the Department of Justice cites that in various legal uh, briefs, but they don't say where it comes from either. It's just kind of a, like, you'll know it when you see it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but this is the first episode in what, in a series I'd like to call the APT files, which we'll do from time to time, going through the various APT labels so we maybe we'll figure it out sometime in the future yeah we can come up with our own uh, own rules for Dexon maybe i get the impression it might be an agreed upon thing between the various companies and organizations that track these things and maybe that's going to fall apart a little bit because we're seeing more more actors operating at a level that might get a label like it keeps accumulating and maybe that consensus won't occur i don't know um We'll, we'll get an answer eventually, even if I have to, you know, park in front of somebody's building for a while. And that, that might not be a good idea if it's a government agency. Yeah, I was going to say that that will look highly suspicious. <laughs> I'll be doing the podcast solo from then on. Hackalope's in jail now. <laughs> Coming live from prison. Yes. Well, I figured that I'm, as people with an information security bent go, I'm, I'm pretty tame. So uh, it would be just my luck to be the guy that actually gets arrested for this stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so when you look this stuff up, you see the same stuff where they break it down to advanced, persistent, and threat. Hmm. When they talk about advanced, they're using advanced techniques and they're dedicating a lot more time to the intrusion than our standard actors. In contrast to somebody running a botnet. Okay. Uh, who's going to get command control, but they don't care about who they get. They don't care about what might be on that computer, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And they're using a tool that's probably pretty easy to, to identify because it's just extra work to make it difficult to track it by hash or, or by uh, specific aspects of the binary itself. Right, so just low-hanging fruit. Just yes. throw it at the wall, see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of that. But that's not what characterizes APTs generally. 
They are doing the Intel work to figure out who they want to target, who might have access for specific targets. So they might target several things. In fact, APT1 was over 100 identified um, victims, but they were specifically going after people and organizations. They tended to have custom built or at least modified tools, as in they may get a, a toolkit, but they'll work on it specifically for a target, making it harder to identify by something like a file hash. Right. So that's the advanced part. They have generally a high level of technical capability, maybe not super high, but at least high. And they mm-hmm. spend the man hours to apply them. Right. They're, they're beyond script kitty level. Yes, the, well, they're, they're, they're the other side of the coin to the script kitty level. Mm-hmm. Persistence is that they're trying to be low and slow. They're trying to maintain access and not alert things. In contrast to somebody doing a ransom or extortion kind of strategy, and they are interested in the data of their target. They're not interested in direct monetization, usually. Yeah. We've seen some fairly advanced threats that, well, I'm not going to say advanced threats. We'll call it advanced social engineering that target larger financial institutions that can authorize transfers of large sums of money without a lot of approval. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, we do not consider those APTs because they're trying to do a monetization they're not trying to maintain persistent access. They're they're trying to get a direct monetization out of things. Okay, so it, it's more that they're stealing data than yeah. Even if that data could be monetized in some way, or is it more like this data is important to them in some manner other than they could sell it? In this particular example, there they were targeting a large number of industries. It was a nation state actor and. Best we can tell, or at least best I can tell based on the open source information, they were looking for trade secrets and other business planning Okay. for industry competition stuff uh, rather than something to sell to somebody. So monetary value, but not really, like, there's no designation to it. They're not trying to get money out of the target. They're trying to get data out of the target. And then uh, from the threat side, again, it's not automated. There's human control there. Uh, Command and control is one of the defining aspects of it. There's a human making decisions about how they're proceeding through the network and what they're getting and how they're proceeding with the attack. Mm, Okay. So at least initially, and we only started really identifying these back in about 2013. This is uh, the first one, as it (laughs) shockingly, (laughs) the first one designated as an APT. Mm. Well, I mean, the first one, should it be one or should it be zero? Depends on what language you're in. <laughs> oh, gosh. The off-by-one errors I get when I'm doing um, field processing using um, Perl versus Bash. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had... I, that was a flashback. <laughs> Unix command line flashback. Anyway, so uh, originally, mostly state-sponsored actors. The, the first, the first uh, several of them were identified to be state-sponsored actors. But we're getting to the point where Organized crime of various levels may have the infrastructure to be an APT. Yeah. One of my little side projects that I've used at various operation centers that I've worked at is a sophistication model. And an APT would be uh, from that zero to four, uh, four range um, 
in the three or four category, which is able to spend at least $100,000 on operations, probably in the four category, at least in, at least back in the day. Nowadays, it might be, the barrier to entry might be lower because the cloud is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so we generally consider these nation state level actors, but there's a little bit of a bias to where they're identified. Um, like Stuxnet for its advanced aspects um, might have been considered an APT and it's usually referenced in a lot of articles about APT, Yeah. but not associated with an APT actor. Hmm. Um, there's another reason why I wouldn't, if I were categorizing things, probably put Stuxnet as an APT threat. And that's not because it's not advanced because it's one of the most advanced pieces of malware we've ever encountered, hmm. but because there's no command and control. Hmm. There's no human decision-making built into the system. Right. I guess, like, the persistence uh, aspect, you know, designating an APT, is the persistence just till a mission is done or, you know, as long as possible? The documentation usually has a loop um, with an exit mm. of, like, maybe complete the mission. But generally speaking, um, we expect them to maintain operation as long as they can, as long as they can, maintain access right we'll probably get i'll learn this a little bit as we as we go down this list because part of the fun of this for me is that i've never made a major study of every apt actor so putting these episodes together is 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 part of you know what ke what get, keeps me going is is that i'll actually be able to read up on all these things yeah yeah exactly but uh one of these things we might learn is whether or not um we've ever seen or we've ever caught an actor extracting and exiting. And another thing we might learn is whether or not they've ever, once they've been identified, try and extract, uh, extricate themselves from the network or if they try and maintain access as long as they can. Mm, yeah, yeah. See, see if they speed up the uh, yeah the jumping of data because they're like, oh crap, gotta go. Yeah, or, ju or just try and cr scrub their tracks, either, mm -hmm. either thing. Yeah. I know that over the years, one of uh, one of the strategies that a lot of people have advocated, and I'm kind of on the fence on this one in terms of practical benefits, is to identify all of the vectors and then cut everything at once so that you're not identifying yourself to the attacker and they can't move laterally to maintain access. Mm, gotcha. I mean, it's a good idea sometimes to just kind of monitor and watch and a lot of people that I've worked with have have uh, taken that attitude. And I'm going to say nothing that I personally worked with did I think that make a significant difference. And kind of going immediately full bore on closing off access might have been the better course of action. But mm -hmm. maybe we, maybe there will be some really good examples as we go down the list of of known activity uh, that can really point me in one direction or another because. I don't think that anybody I talked to about that ever backed it up with a case study. And I'm not sure that I asked, but I don't have any case study to work from. Yeah. So, I mean, again, that's a, that's something I hope that we, that we can get some insight into as we move along and move, move down the list. So typically an APT has five stages of, of action. And again, this is what you'll see if you look up what is an APT almost everywhere. First, there is the gain, uh, the gaining of access. Very typically, especially in the early APTs, was all about spear phishing, mm. targeting, getting a foothold, 
And that foothold is get patient zero, get command and control. Right. And then the next stage is to deepen access using tools like Mimi Cats that we talked about before or other, creden or other credential harvesting within the system and credential use within the system or escalation privilege on that system in order to maintain persistence on that host and get a set of credentials and endpoints to work laterally against. Right. And there are, just reminded me, um, what was it like three weeks ago where we had the, uh, the SSH vulnerability that has <laughs> been there for like years and years and years and allows anyone basically just to pseudo. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the first time we've got, we've seen one of those. No. Oh, that was around for like a really long time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, when we're talking about uh, mini cats, we were talking about the NTLM hash, mm -hmm. uh, the chap hash, and the chap hash had that vulnerability going back into the 90s when Microsoft built its own chap authentication for PPP, point-to-point uh, -point protocol for dial-up modems. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember actually learning about PPP and uh, chap. Yeah, and also being like, why the hell am I learning about this? Like, it's all defunct now, but. Textbooks are old. Well, that's the thing. Until that was summarily broken by by Moxie Marlin Spike, it was still valid because that was the authentic the underlying authentication method used for uh, PPTP, the 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 point to point tunneling protocol that mm. was the default Microsoft built in method of doing VPN. Right. Yeah. And if uh, Moxie Marlin Spike hadn't found that particular vulnerability, we'd still be using it now. <laughs> It's funny, uh, one of my trainings uh, that we have to do yearly uh, for Microsoft, mm -hmm. the Microsoft training still has you like, hey, how would you create a PPTP connection? And I'm like, I've never done this, nor will I ever do this. Why is this still in the training? Yeah. I, well, I know that I've used, I used it once or twice. In fact, I used it. I built a PPTP gateway like a couple of months before the major problem came out because it was... <laughs> for somebody that wasn't in our organization it was like i could try and get them to install a vpn client or i could just do this right bad decision being lazy was a bad decision <laughs> anyway so there's the deep end access and then they move laterally and that's going to the hosts and networks that they can get to from there and that can widen the foothold but more importantly it can widen access if you have users that have lateral access you have a user subnet and you have maybe an admin subnet and that user subnet can talk to that admin subnet mm -hmm. like normal networks are but that admin subnet is in a network range that's in firewall rules and various access rules in order to be able to log into routers or other admin consoles or direct access to uh the active directory ring zero right. stuff if you have the tiered ring system the what they i think used to call uh the red domain yeah, system yeah, yeah. those kinds of things can get you more access because of the network that they're in even though from a protection point of view there isn't an access control between the foothold system and the admin workstation mm -hmm. and high levels of network segmentation frankly not a lot of people implement them i've been in places that do and it's a fairly reasonable thing to say that, yeah, we looked at that, but network segmentation 
takes a huge amount of operations, operational effort, operations and maintenance effort. And we decided not to do that or only implement it to a limited scope because it really slows things down. Yeah, I mean, it can also become infuriating. I have someone that does uh, one-to-one IP mapping for every single rule. And when I'm building out like 30 systems in a VLAN and I'm like, they all need to go here. Like, why do I need to send you each IP separately? I don't think I've ever been quite to that level, but I've definitely been in one of the places that I, that I did where we managed a major transition from firewall platforms, thousands of rules, millions of permissions. Yeah. They had dozens of security zones. And because of those dozens of security zones, it was, it was a lot of rules and it was a fairly good crew. They knew what they were doing, but it mm-hmm. was still an awful lot of, it was a big lift to transition that stuff. And sometimes it's rather hard, like the, the same guy um, on a previous mission that I'd worked with him, we had a domain and he wanted to know all of the ports uh, that Active Directory will use. Well, that's a crap ton of ports. In fact, I think like Microsoft is like basically just open everything from like 5,000 to 10,000 or something because we will use some of those, you know, ports. And if you are blocking a subset of that, like your AD just might not work. Maybe we'll do another episode on Active Directory security after the Mimi Cats thing, but um, you can't. There are registry entries that will constrain the ports that that, that Microsoft works on mm-hmm. for Active Directory, and um, a lot of more advanced firewalls nowadays. Um, I'm working. I've done a fair bit of work with Palo Altos in the last few years. Uh, are very application aware. The Cisco's um, are also application aware, although their system, in my opinion, is somewhat less sophisticated. Um, But the fact is that application awareness can allow for like uh, ephemeral RPC connections on ports you didn't identify because they're, because it's aware that, that within the connection, it says, Hey, open this port. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very nice. Cause yeah. Yeah. We run into issues constantly. We did try doing the registry thing, but as anyone listening who, deals with Microsoft Windows knows uh, editing the registry is both horribly painful and crazy dangerous. Your gun, your foot. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, as the saying goes, I, I've, I've done it successfully, so I know it can be done, but yeah, the, the, the more systems you have to do it to, the worse it is. Okay, well, so let's get to APT1, Comment Crew. Mandiant was, was the one that really gave us the identification on APT1. Um, they, they showed that it was in operation since 2006, and some of the compile time information from the deconstructed tools uh, actually showed that they may have, that some of the tools that, they, that they've been using, that they were using might've dated all the way back to 2004. But Mandiant first reported on them in January, 2010. And then they published a very significant report, which we'll link in the show notes in 2013. Uh, In that report, they identified the actor behind Comet Crew APT-1, and there are a few other names for that, uh, as China People's Liberation Army Army number uh, unit number 61398. They were able to get that specific? Yes. Hmm. In fact, I think it's APT-2, it might be APT-3 is another Chinese PLA unit. (laughs) That's interesting. I wonder... Oh, are you, are you going to talk about how they got this specific or? Uh, they didn't actually go into how they got that specific, but they did get a street address of their headquarters. Interesting. Okay. 
so they got the street address of the headquarters. Um, it might have been based on some network information. I don't know. I do know that I've done some track back of various things using network information that was specific enough. Mm. Um, so it's an angle that at least will let you go in the right direction because it may be another thing about this is you will find that you have a Venn diagram kind of effect yeah. for allowing you to narrow things down. Um, but they definitely identified that the actor had command and control in Shanghai, hmm. uh, a small number of, of IPs networks in Shanghai, and they were all in Shanghai. Um, and they were able to find the street address of the headquarters in Shanghai. Um, and the actual address is, is, is in the report um, with photos of the building and stuff like that from the moral equivalent of uh, Google Street View. I think City 8 was the, num was the name of the uh, service that, got, that they got their, their photos from. Slight tangent. Uh, have you ever watched any of the guys on like Twitch or YouTube that um, they like actually answer the, uh, the spam calls or the emails and stuff like that? Um, but they work in cybersecurity and he will set up basically VM to allow them to get into it and like trash his VM. And he, he sometimes uses like uh, voice changers to pretend to be like an old woman. And like, you know, he's like, <laughs> oh, I don't understand what you're doing. Or like, you know, I'm the aunt of like so-and-so and whatever. But um, there's certain points like where they, they, they realize like maybe something's amiss and he tries to like keep them on the line as long as possible just for entertainment value. But there's one where he asked them like, you know, where they were from a few times. And they said, you know, whatever state. And uh, then at one point he's like, well, how's the food at this restaurant? And they're like, what? And he's like, like, I know you're in India right now at this address. And he's like, you know, I'm looking at Google maps and I can see the restaurants across the street from you. And they just hung up immediately. <laughs> well, I, I, I had one, I had somebody call me on a scam like that saying, we're from Microsoft. We want you to do some very Eastern European accent. <laughs> and I was like, I know this is a scam and you know this is a scam, but can you give me the link anyway? I kind of want to look at the uh, at what you uh, what you were <laughs> going to make me download, what you wanted me to download. And he was like, "This is a he he cussed me out and it was <laughs> and it was like I I thought it was a little interesting that the that the call itself had the had a um thing that says that this call might be recorded for quality purposes at the beginning. Uh, that's funny. Like, this is, and my this response is, to him was recorded for quality purposes, I'm sure. Yeah, like, uh, this is how you say uh, Microsoft? Oh, it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so they found the building itself. And based on the size of the building, they figured that it's at least hundreds of people, possibly in the low thousands mm, of okay. people that were, that were doing this stuff. Um, and at that at the point of publication in 2013, they had observed the compromise of 141 companies in 20 major industries. IT was the biggest one, but they went basically everywhere, hmm. uh, every major industry. And 87% of the affected of the affected um, companies were were from English speaking nations. Hmm, okay. And the handful that weren't were like a lot of them were EU. Yeah. The and uh, the Longest time they were they were uh, they maintained access to one of the to one of the companies that that Mandiant identified was four years and ten months. Damn, with the average being three hundred and fifty six days. Just almost almost a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of the things that I was looking at, the stats are even in like 2017, 2018 are 
uh, average dwell time before detection is under some circumstances 77 days, uh, other under others like 143. Mm, okay. So we have improved, but the average dwell time of an APT is still quite high. Yeah, yeah. So their modus on, their 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 MO, their modus operandi, um, was typically as the initial vector of spear phishing. And it usually contained a zip file. Um, not always, but usually it was a zip file mm -hmm. with with an executable inside. Based on the information reported, this they didn't use encrypted zips, um, which is a typical way of getting past a lot of uh, antivirus um, attachment scanning. Right. But um, at this point, doesn't seem that they needed them. And going back in the in the wayback machine of my head. Um, about that was about the time where people really started adding those those kind of file security mechanisms to mm -hmm. their mail systems. I know ours is like crazy stringent. Like I think text yeah. files are allowed, and that's literally it. Or like PST files. Mm -hmm. Like I can't even send a. Uh, I, I can't send like a certificate. Like I can't send a mm -hmm. dot, uh, CR or dot pen. Uh, yeah, I've actually had uh, one at at least one place I worked. Uh, you couldn't send Python or Perl code even as a text file. I think, yeah, I think actually we have the issue because <laughs> I've tried to do that a few times just to say, like, hey, here's the script, like, you know, go ahead and run it, and it's failed. I mean, thankfully, we have teams that can just copy the code into that and yeah. give it to them. But. Well, if I remember right, I could send it in the body of the message, but not as a file attachment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can always, like, <laughs> circumnavigate navigate it that way. Yeah. But uh, back in the day, at least... We have 141 examples where they didn't uh, yeah. do some of those mail security things. Um, and uh, in the report, they they talked about how some people would reply back to the email and say, "Hey, this email looks a little fishy. Is it for real?" And the and the APT would reply and say, "Yeah, it's legit." And they go and they run it. At least some of the time, mm -hmm. they have examples of where that happened. I mean, if you can't trust the APT, who can you trust? <laughs> Uh, I think that list might be a little long. <laughs> um, so they used some publicly available backdoors, uh, persistence malware like Ghost Rat or Poison Ivy, but they had a couple of dozen families of low availability remote access tools. And I say low availability because Mandiant said that they're not publicly available, and I didn't do any analysis, but I could certainly see code being shared between other PLA units and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, some of the phishing stuff that I've seen for Hong Kong phishing, um, they called them chickens, uh, um, showed that there were a few major groups and there's a high likelihood that members of various groups moved from one group to another because they saw aspects of the code, features of the code move from one to the other as generations went on. And when you said chickens, uh, chickens are referring to the, the people doing writing the code or the people that are attacking? No, no, the, 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 the victims. I don't remember exactly why they called them chickens, but yeah, it only strikes me as interesting because I just started watching uh, Warrior on HBO, mm -hmm. which is about uh, Chinese immigration to San Francisco back, you know, when they were just laying the railroad and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they have their Chinatown. Also, anyone listening, uh, go check out the, the show. It's awesome. Based on Bruce Lee's uh, original story that they kind of bastardized and the Kung Fu legend continued. But um, all, all the uh, the Chinese folks in uh, Chinatown call the American people ducks and where they live, the duck pond. And I, I'm still not exactly sure why they call it that or if it's historically accurate. But 
the chickens thing made me uh, remember that. Well, it's one of those things that that we have idioms and different places have different idioms. Yeah. And it's been really easy for a lot of my career to think that all InfoSec happens in the English speaking world. But like we were talking about in Mimi Cat with the in the Mimi Cats episode, and in fact the SSL episode, a lot of the a lot of the significant vulnerabilities were fat were presented in Argentina. It's a mistake not to realize that stuff happens all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, they used a two-stage backdoor system, which honestly for me was very reminiscent of a lot of early worms that used a two-stage exploit system as well where they got in and had something that downloaded the second stage, more functional exploit end of things. Right. And in this case, they used what looks like an internally developed uh, web C2 engine and that, that they iterated on several times during the, um, during the term that they were on operation. Uh, in fact, in the Mandiant report, they said something along the lines that the, uh, that they believed that it was somebody's more or less full-time job to develop and work on this. Hmm, interesting. Which is, you know, showing what we were talking about in, with APT, that they're able to de- dedicate uh, the time and coding effort yeah. to customize and work on their tools. Yeah. But this WebC2 thing would go out and fetch a web page, which would have a command of one of a very, they had a very small set of commands that they would execute. They would download a file, they could execute a file using CMDEXE, and they could sleep. And that's all that WebC2 did. Mm-hmm. But the big back, the, the standard backdoor, the big backdoor had like every administration function that you would, ex- that you would hope or expect to have. Uh, create, modify, delete programs, upload, download files, directories, um, list start and stop processes, modify the system registry, take screenshots of the user's desktop, capture keystrokes and mouse movement, and all of the fun. And so um, once they had that access, they had full command access. In fact, uh, probably a little bit greater access than something like VNC back in the day, More, uh, more functional uh, shell than that. The system uses covert communications over uh, HTTP at the time. Um, I don't believe it was HTTPS, or at least there was no reference to HTTPS. Uh, and it mimicked um, various chat program over via HTTP. Uh, MSN Messenger, one version mimicked MSN Messenger. One of them mimicked the Jabber XMPP protocol, which is what the original Google chat used to be based on. Because mm-hmm. they said, why reinvent the wheel when we could just take Jabber's open source code? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, there was another one that mimicked Google Calendar. Mm. But uh, so, th- so they used various HTTP um, protocols that mimicked the structure of a- some application layer stuff that would be fairly normal operations. Oh, that's cool. And once they had things, they would dump passwords and accounts from the registry. They would do a local SAM password dump, dumper. Uh, they would dump password hatches from open LSAS sessions. And guess what? They used Mimikatz. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I was right around the, that point in time. I don't think they started out with, with, with that because of at least the era when Mimikatz was released. Right. But uh, 
they managed to steal quite a lot of data. Um, I believe it was one victim they verified the, the exfiltration of six and a half terabytes of, of data. Jeez. And they made, as previously mentioned, they maintained uh, persistence for a really long time. And that's, that's the difficulty with, 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 uh, with these things is if it's not tripping your antivirus, if it's custom coded, if it's customized at some level for your network, um, so that it doesn't match a hash, mm -hmm. what do you do? How do you deal with that? Yeah. Because traditional antivirus won't do as good a job as you'd like it to do. In fact, it might not do as a good, a very good job at all. Um, we were talking about in the Mimi Cats episode again, uh, where they changed not very many aspects of the, of the code itself and most antivirus and it passed through virus total without any issues. Yeah, and I mean, you said this is like around 2013? 2013 was when the major report came out. In fact, uh, there are other examples uh, of uh, that are attributed to APT1 um, in like 2018. Yeah, so but like back then, I think maybe we were just starting to even think of the concept of like uh, network anomaly detection and like, mm -hmm. you know, basing some signatures off of, you know, not just the signature hash that gets fed to you from whatever corporation is your antivirus or whatever, yeah. but actually like getting a baseline of your network and then seeing, you know, what's going wonky. But those are just tons of false positives too. Yeah. Well, trying to do a baseline analysis of your network can be very difficult. The more heterogeneous your network is, the more stuff mm. that's going on, it can be very difficult. I think we're getting to the point where some artificial intelligence tools are telling us some th some useful stuff, but mm -hmm. heuristic and artificial intelligence analysis is still not anywhere close to perfect. The false positive rates, I'm currently using a product that maintains its AI background, and I'm not going to name them until... I'm not going to name them at least at this point, but yeah. uh, at least until I have some other stuff to compare against so I really understand the, where the market is on that. Um, but the vast majority of things that, that we've seen identified are false positives. And the small number of true positives are non-malicious true positives, weird stuff that was going on on the network of things that like weren't turned off or weird misconfigurations rather right. than something that was actively malicious. Yeah, like I've sat down with sales folks from like you know people selling like you know AI network anomaly detection tools, you know yada yada, and it, I don't know. I've never been like super impressed. Like yeah, it's been like a lot of false positives, you know, then just the bare bones like what you would expect in any mm -hmm. package. And it seems like a lot of the um, time was devoted to a fancy like matrix style like uh, GUI <laughs> to make yeah. the managers like oh. <laughs> Look at everything it can do. Like it can render like the buildings in like 3D when it finds a location. It's like yeah, um, cool. Everybody like, has a map diagram, and it's like I have three sites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I don't, I don't this. care where in the U.S. they are, or I know that already. That's not the important part of the Yeah, equation. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, even in networks that have more than three sites, but there are a couple of things that I do think are useful and worthwhile. To have in there. One of the most important things, no, a technique known as gray listing. And uh, there are a couple of products that do this. Palo Alto and um, Bluecoat, I know both do this. And I believe that, that, they're, that all of their major competitors also do it, which is that they have their categorized sites and they coordinate a, usually a um, cloud method 
uh, mechanism in there. So if it's not in the on-site database, it can check the cloud to, uh, to get a categorization. Okay. And if you don't have a categorization or it's blocked, you don't allow the traffic. Hmm. And in that case, any you know, just random site that comes up that's used for command and control, if it has no reputation, your end users don't get there. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a low overhead, fairly low overhead method that works on some of these very, very kinds of things. Yeah. Where you're not going to see it malicious in terms of the kind of traffic that's going over the port, but you may block the destination just because it doesn't have a reputation. Yeah, and I mean, if it is something the user actually needs to access, you're obviously going to get an angry call. Right. Um, in fact, the operations team, where that's a big part of our of the network security that, that, that we put in place, a fair bit of the security operations team's events are specifically about access requests based on getting the uncategorized, the gray list message, mm -hmm. and them checking them and submitting a, um, a request for categorization over to the vendor. Yeah, and it's definitely like, it's a very fine tooth comb because we implemented something like that um, with NASA, well, web filtering, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but it was like a freaking, not even a hammer, it was like a sledgehammer uh, approach where like, if a site even mentioned gaming in any capacity, it was immediately <laughs> blocked, which blocked a, a lot of tech sites with like IT related yeah. news because they usually also have like a gaming section. And so they, God, I think it was like six months of just back and forth. Like, I, why can't I get the Stack Overflow? Like, I need Stack Overflow. I will literally yeah. not be able to do my job. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not using your time effectively if you're trying to figure it out yourself instead of looking it up on Stack Overflow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the meme of the, uh, like the guy who built Stack Overflow without using Stack Overflow. He's like just a gigantic brain like a DC uh, <laughs> comic book uh, villain. Yeah, <laughs> I, man. I know that I've relied on 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 it a little more often than I than I feel comfortable with sometimes, but mm -hmm. I use a different alias there than anywhere else uh, yeah. in order to in in order to to make sure that that nobody sees me asking questions. Yep, the same on like Reddit Stack Overflow. I have different usernames just because I don't want people to realize how stupid I am. <laughs> well. I've had people, I'm pretty careful about sanitization, but I've had pe people be, be like, no, never ask a question on an online forum for anything related to any of this. Yeah. It's like, um, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you have to take reasonable precautions, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know, it gets complicated. But uh, other things I think are very helpful, at least historically, are getting records of all of your DNS resolution requests. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways of going about that. One is uh, getting stuff directly off of the, the name server. There's an add-on for most DNS servers. I know it works for bind called DNS tap, which will, in addition to the normal bind logs that give you the requests, mm -hmm. also log the responses, uh, which is almost as good as bro, but uh, having bro on the wire showing you actually showing the, you the requests based on the traffic is actually a little bit better yeah. because the name server won't uh, log any of the intermediate responses. You'll get the request and then you'll get the actual answer at the end. But if there's anything in the middle there that's important, mm. you won't see that in the in the bind logs. But anytime you get 
intelligence about a bad domain name for some of these CNC things, which I think is some of the more, most effective stuff. Being able to look at that historical record of resolution can really tell you whether or not um, you've been affected by right. something that's related to this. Yeah. That to whatever you had the report on. I think those two things are are pretty important. I think some of the more advanced host stuff that we have nowadays that's more behavior based than just straight antivirus is also becoming more and more necessary, especially if you're running if you're in somewhere that that uh, may be more targeted than your J random personal user yeah, yeah. Um, for these APT kinds of things. Um, a lot of endpoint detection response has uh, some fairly advanced abilities to deal with some of these and other things. It's, I mean, it's easy to advocate for spending for more money, but the fact is things have advanced to a point where you need some of the more advanced capabilities relying solely on antivirus and firewalls uh, is is just not something that's going to protect you from advanced persistent threats nowadays. Yeah, I remember watching videos of uh, like a ton of these people do it, but uh, there's one crew that would always, I think it was like every Friday, like they just do videos like, hey, we're going to bypass, you know, uh, X antivirus uh, software just to show you that like how easy it is to just, you know, bypass it and now it's not protecting your system and we can, you know, pop on it. It is also like it's so annoying. Some of the, the antivirus solutions, like I mean, nine out of ten are basically just viruses themselves, and like you know, destroy your system and bog it down to just where it's it, it's unusable. Especially like if you're doing a lot of data manipulation, we have you know some systems that it's like okay, we have antivirus on it, but it can't scan ninety percent of the system because we have processes and data there that if it was scanning it, it would basically break the system yeah. and we wouldn't get anything done. So but it can scan the user's home directory and that's it. Yeah, and it's a very tough balancing act for the antivirus manufacturers or vendors because you want to keep it fast mm -hmm. and you have all of these signatures. How do you make that better? And some things that have shown some promise are uh, behavior identification of calls to the system. That requires a much more sophisticated and nuanced view of how the system's being used. And yeah, that is. It's been a tough technology to develop. That, that is also very hard, just in the capacity of. I think NASA was trying to implement something along those lines where uh, all the programs that have been signed, you know, that, that's great at a corporate uh, level. You know, like all these applications, you know, signed by whoever developed them, that's how you can solve them. You can't do that when you're like at the rocket scientist development level where they're writing custom code all the time and like it's never going to be signed and it's changing daily. So, well, I'm not sure that that's completely true, but I will say so. I've definitely talked with folks that have locked their have locked a relatively constrained number of systems down and they do custom code, but part of their build process signs the code with with uh, local certificates. Yeah. But I don't know of a single larger organization, even in very security conscious environments, um, air gap networks, that kind of thing, they'll run only signed code registry entries in mm -hmm. Windows. Um, and there's no real equivalent for Linux. You can do that at the package level, but not at the binary level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
uh, vast majority of our stuff is Linux. So I would really like to give the old college try to the only run sign software, that idea, because I've definitely been in environments that restricted administrative privilege strongly enough where you knew what was going on systems pretty much. And mm. when I've done sampling of endpoints of like what software is currently running and not signed, you can do that with uh, with the sys internals tools, yeah. uh, process explorer. Well, you can run it remotely against a box, uh, get the command line dump of, of everything. And in a, um, I think it's XML or something, but it's like, it was, I built a script to do that for a sample because I was trying to sell somebody on this. Right. And uh, I thought that the, that it got to be a small enough thing to deal with that we could do it. Um, and uh, there's actually the host system that uh, one of the, one of the host protection systems that I've worked with had a system where that would identify all of the executed binaries in the network and just keep track of those. Hmm. And you could blacklist a binary or, or, or whitelist, or you could see, but you could see what was being executed. You could blacklist a binary. And once we got that up and running, and it wasn't super simple, but once we got it up and running, the amount, that the variance, how, how much that changed in any given week was a lot smaller than you might, than, than you might be afraid of. Hmm. I, I, I think that it's a place that we could get to, yeah. but a lot of organizations are just not willing to deal with the pain and the amount of man hours of fairly sophisticated, technically sophisticated people to implement that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Bill Gates's dream of a trusted, trusted computing world is stymied in a lot of ways because the operations and maintenance burden is so high. Yeah, yeah. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs one on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.